I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show, we have the writer Anne Dowsett Johnston. More than just a writer, she's not just a writer. She's the winner of five National Magazine Awards, uh, the Atkinson Fellowship in Public Policy, with which uh, she wrote an 11-part series for the Toronto Star on women and alcohol. Her book, Drink, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol, is something that we talk a lot about in our interview today. Uh, you know, we... I've brought in uh, really quite intentionally a few guests who have spoken about addiction and alcoholism in particular, uh, and I think the perspective of women specifically and alcoholism is something that Anne has has explored uh, extensively. So I think we had a really interesting conversation about that, how women uh, who drink uh, to excess are often treated differently uh, by society, and especially now uh, in terms of marketing campaigns geared toward women and alcohol. So we explore all of these issues, and I'm intensely grateful to Anne for sharing her, her stories here uh, with us to help break down these kinds of barriers. So here's my conversation on So-Called Normal with Anne Dowsett Johnston. I am a journalist of um, many years who has gone back to school to become a therapist. I'm I, doing my master's of social work at Smith College yeah. and I um, am very, very challenged by going back to school. <laughs> <laughs> At this stage in your life or just in general? Were you a, previously a, a identify as a good student? Do you like school? I, I like school. I think um, when you have been in a career such as I was in journalism for 40 years, mm. you become very adept at swimming in the deep waters. Mm. And to be a learner and to be at the beginning of something is challenging and interesting at my age. Sure. sure. So what well, well let's get to that in a minute. Talk to me first about your journalism career. Sure. Um, what got you into it? Where did you work? What was that like for you? I worked for the lion's share of my career at McLean's Magazine. Um, I was there for a long time. It had many, many hats. I was a writer, a columnist, but I'm best known for inventing the McLean's ranking of universities. And that's the thing that for some reason, I didn't know that you did that. Yes. <laughs> That's fascinating. So this is the, the McLean's ranking of universities, of course, is very influential in, uh, at least as I recall, uh, in university campuses and the competition for it. Um, right. Uh, so so tell me about that. What what brought that about was I assume there is a demand for um, from students. Yes. Baby boom parents were sending their sons and daughters off to university and presumed that University was as vital as it had been for them and wanted to know things like class sizes and investment in libraries, etc. And we did the ranking thinking it would be an interesting exercise and it flew off the shelves, mm -hmm. sewing out in three hours in some cities and three days in all of Canada. And you could say that McLean's knew what they were doing, but frankly, it took us three weeks to reprint it. It was a surprise bestseller. Right. And right. I did that for 14 years of my life um, and became an expert in public education and yeah. 
public policy. How would you rank or 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 did you rank uh, things like campus culture and especially when it comes to mental health and emotional supports of students? We talk about this all the time now, but right. years ago, maybe not so much? Maybe not so much. It was pre the Jack Project. It was mm-hmm. pre a lot of the attention that we have seen. But we did do a McLean's Guide to Universities and we did go to current students and ask about what was successful and not successful on their campuses. Mm. And um, in my last iteration of the McLean's ranking, I wrote a major piece on suicide. Mm. Why? What was that about? I was interested in why young men um, attempted to take their lives and were successful mm-hmm. more than young mm-hmm. Women and I focused on a couple of stories and a couple of families who had made a major effort to go public and raise awareness and funds mm-hmm. for the cause. Mm. Was there something, was there a story or an incident that drew your attention to that issue in particular? My own depression. Mm. My own depression and my, um, I think when you're a journalist, you have this wonderful reality that you're paid to learn. Right. And it was a possibility for me to speak to some of the best experts in the country and beyond to talk about what depression was, Mm. how you addressed it. I won't say fix it, but addressed it. I mean, you're already an extremely successful journalist by this point. Were you open about your depression? No. Nobody knew. Did you you know that you were depressed at that time? I did. Yeah. I did know. I had known for a long time. Were you getting treatment? I was getting treatment and I was confounded by it. How so? I hit a depression in my 50s that was difficult, unrelenting, didn't seem to respond to much. And I became extremely curious about how to address um, something that had been bothering me since I was 11. Since 11? Mm-hmm. And that's your earliest memories of feeling, I don't even know how you describe it, not right or sad or down? How, did, how would you down. have described it as an 11-year-old? Down? Down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, it really came on in my teens. Mm-hmm. And what was different in my 50s is that things that I had done before to address depression were not working. And I found myself deeply curious Mm -hmm. about what we knew, what we didn't know about depression at the time. Mm -hmm. We had... um uh, Anna Mailer Paperney on the show a few weeks ago, and she was just shortlisted actually for the Writers Trust uh, Prize in Nonfiction uh, for her her new memoir, uh, which talks about her own depression and suicidality. Um, and she, I, 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 you rem- reminded me of her because she's also a journalist uh, writing about her own depression. Uh, it has a, a, a reference section in the back that's almost as thick as the book <laughs> because she seems to have a very uh, similar approach. What is it about? Wanting to understand, right? Was that a defense of some kind of, of trying to intellectualize your your struggle? What was happening there for you? I was just deeply curious, mm-hmm. deeply curious as to what we knew and what we didn't know about the brain, mm-hmm. what we didn't know and didn't know about mood. Mm. And, and how long ago was this? 
That would have been 2005. Right. So, I so mean, a long time ago now. Well, relatively speaking, especially in the in the uh, science of mental health, because the conversation about mental health has really exploded since then. Uh, probably starting around that time, I would say. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So it was um, an interesting time. I went on from there to become VP of McGill University. Mm-hmm. And um, spent a couple of years there. I guess if you want to, if you're a university, you probably want to hire the person who invented the McLean's rankings right. <laughs> to, to come and be your VP. Right. So, what was your focus at, at McGill then? I mean, a very prestigious school. Fundraising, um, mm-hmm. storytelling, as in alumni relations and university relations. Right. And I went from there back to journalism right. and won the Atkinson Fellowship in public policy. What's that? It's um, really the Plum Award that you can get as a journalist in, in Canada, mm-hmm. um, where you're you're paid upwards of $100,000 to travel the world to look at a public policy issue. Wow. And the one I chose was women and alcohol. Right. And so I spent a year invested in writing 14 articles, traveling the world, looking at why women were closing the gender gap on risky drinking? Mm-hmm. Why were they catching up to men? I was really curious. By that time, I had had my own history with alcohol. Okay. And I was um, not coming out in that series. Mm-hmm. I decided not to with my editor. And so from that series, I developed my book, Drink, right. The Intimate Relationship on Women and Alcohol. So you were, you were self-aware enough of, of your um, alcoholism at that time. You, were you in recovery at that time? I was in recovery. Okay. Where, where did that begin? I mean, that's kind of a big deal, right? Was, was this a coping mechanism for the depression that you, that you mentioned? It was. It was self-medication. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it was... Something that caught up with me and that I'd grown up with. My mother was a severe alcoholic. My father ended up dying of alcoholism. And um, it was something I knew all too well. And I mm. fooled myself for a long time because my drinking didn't look anything like my mother's. I didn't drink during the day. I didn't miss work. In fact, I won awards at work. And I was confounded by what looked to be and was a quick trajectory into alcoholism, mm-hmm. and I addressed it by going to rehab. In inpatient or inpatient, thirty-day yeah. um, rehab in the states, and was successful. Thank goodness, and I'm now in my eleventh year of recovery. Congratulations! Thank you. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, when did you know that something was wrong? That something uh, that you were drinking too much. Um, family members said something to me. I knew. Mm. I think mm. we always know in our own hearts when we're um, using a substance in a way we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. But family members addressed me, both my son and my partner at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was able to, unlike my mother, um, hear what they were saying mm-hmm. and realize that I was going to lose my family and my relationships if I didn't do something. Mm. So I took a hammer, a sledgehammer to the problem, and <laughs> it was effective. Luckily, not everyone's so lucky. Right. Um, when Seamus O'Regan was on the show, he mentioned uh, when he was on the way to his first ever uh, inpatient treatment, uh, he stopped and he bought a great big bag of candy. And he said he never bought candy before. And his doctor later explained to him that his brain bought that candy, that it was looking for, it, it knew the jig was up and it was trying to substitute uh, for something else. Right. Did you have anything like that? Like when you first 
went to that recovery facility. What was that like for you? It's a very different environment inside, isn't it? I often say that it's easy to stay sober in a place that's locked up where they take your urine when you go out to an AA meeting. So those 30 days were actually delightful. Yeah. And I went to a very interesting place that looked at concurrent disorders, so was looking at my depression. And it was, um, I knit a lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) and spent my time really journaling and thinking about what it was that I was confronting, and some of that ended up in the book drink. What was the driving force, the depression driving the alcoholism or the alcoholism driving the depression? I would say the depression driving the alcoholism. So once you started to get to the bottom of that, uh, it helped? But of course, it's a depressant, right? Alcohol is a depressant. So it wasn't ideal. Right. Let's just yeah, put it that yeah, way. Yeah. yeah. Of all the coping mechanisms, that's probably not the most effective one. No. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so you're, uh, you're released then. And like you say, it's a very different environment. I mean, I've been in psychiatric care inpatient, uh, uh, you know, lots of times. Uh, and it's, it's fine to do well when you're in there, when they lock the doors. Right. Uh, but when you go back out into the world with all the same problems, all the same stressors that you faced going in that put you in there in many respects in the first place, um, it can be difficult to stay on the straight and narrow. So how was that for you to take those lessons from those 30 days and actually apply them in the community? Yeah, first year sobriety is not for the faint of heart. Right. You're looking at your first New Year's, your first Christmas, your first birthday, your first everything mm-hmm. party. Um, and you have to learn new coping mechanisms. Right. And it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to live that again. Mm-hmm. But I did, and it's um, now something I don't even think about. Yeah, sure. Now, were were you somebody who, uh, in order to go to parties and functions and things like that, that that drinking would normally be a part of that? Yes. Yeah. So going to those again, that must have been sober. Sober must have been difficult, right? Trying to navigate those social interactions without. Uh, yes, it's it's uh, novel at the beginning. Right. Right. I I used alcohol for many things. I sure. used to go to sleep. I used it to perk up for a party. I used it. I was a workaholic long before I was an alcoholic. Mm. And I used it to function. And without it in my life, I had to really recast my life in a very different way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's when you realize, oh, I actually didn't have the strongest skills underneath <laughs> that that other thing that was helping me. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so I mean that can be exciting in a way too, depending on the mindset that you bring to it. Um, you know, and it sounds like you're a very curious person uh, to be able to to rediscover yourself in that way, right? Did anything surprise you in your in your recovery journey? Did anything come up that you thought, oh, I didn't see that coming? <laughs> I ended up working very differently for a couple of years. I mm. book edited and turned the volume down on what had been a very high-powered career. Mm-hmm. Before I went back and did my series on women and alcohol, mm-hmm. I became very quiet and took a hard look at how I was living. Mm. Now, you said you were in a program as well, um, and I understand that uh, while I've never participated in a program, um, different people have different ways of talking about it, um, so however you're comfortable. But uh, what was that like for you, participating with other people who also had similar uh, struggles to you? I used 12-step very seriously in the beginning of my program. 
of sobriety, my years of sobriety. Um, I've used many things, um, mm. exercise, friendships, connectivity of all sorts mm. to be sturdy in my sobriety and recovery. And I think it takes a whole toolkit mm. of abilities to be able to recreate a life sure. without a substance. Right. Right. It's a it's a curious thing. What I found is that my depression dug in. Mm, interesting. How so? Without the use of alcohol, um, you are totally unmedicated mm -hmm. uh, in a different way. <laughs> and my depression was deep. Mm. And I think there's some mourning involved, some mourning involved in saying goodbye to alcohol. I once saw an um, interview with Kelsey Grammer, the actor, uh, and his drug of choice was cocaine at the time. And, you know, he, he, lots of people talk about it being dirty and, and all that stuff. But he said, no, I did it because I liked it. That's, that's what he said. He's been sober for a very long time, but he said he did it because he liked it. And so, you know, you're saying that it's need, needing to readjust uh, to a different way of approaching life, I think, is very much in line with that, too. Yes. You know, Carolyn Knapp, the late Carolyn Knapp, wrote the book Drinking a Love Story, and I mm. think it is a love story. Mm. Um, so it's a breakup. It's a mm. big breakup that you have to mourn and um, address in whatever way you can. Did you go through the, the proverbial stages of grief while you were breaking up with alcohol? I don't know. <laughs> That's a really anger. good question. <laughs> yeah, all that. Maybe a little. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, maybe a little. So who did you lean on then when you were in those darkest times? How did you get through those? I used um, an addiction specialist. Mm -hmm. I used um, friendships in a healthy way. I family Mm -hmm. loved ones. Mm -hmm. People are very grateful when you address um, something, I'll call it an affliction, mm. um, like my dependence on alcohol. Mm. And uh, I won't get into the disease question, but mm. um, an affliction that was very hard for me. Yeah. And people were amazing. They understood? Totally. Yeah. And in our family, because there had been history um, there was gratitude that I was addressing it right. and coming out the other side. Right, right. Were you, do you have siblings? I do. So how was that for them seeing you, you know, having had the same parents who both had alcohol disorders or, or yes. struggles with alcohol as well? What was that like for them? They were tremendous. Yeah. They were probably my biggest fans. Really? They were, as was my son, um, just phenomenal in terms of, support and reminding me of how much I was getting back. Right, right. Now, did you find uh, both in your in your research and in writing the articles up and up to the book um, that women who drink to excess are treated differently? I mean, the kind of the archetype of the the quote unquote alcoholic is is a white bloated, you know, middle aged man, I think, in my right. mind anyway, because uh, that's what you see on Cheers, right. <laughs> you know. So, so did you face stigma, discrimination, differing views on on uh, your experience as a woman struggling with alcohol? Yes, I think we don't tolerate. We tend to see the male as a bon vivant, someone mm -hmm. who's, you know, enjoying life. Whereas we see women. Women tend to, when they develop alcohol problems, isolate, mm -hmm. drink on their own, and um, we see women as sloppy and mm. um, very differently, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. very differently. Although I would say that since I wrote my book in 2015, 
2013, excuse me, there's been a lot of focus on the mummy wine culture, mm, yeah. mummy drinking culture. We have seen that become popularized. Sure. We have seen- Mimosas at 11 a.m., that kind of thing. That's right. Brunch. Rosé all day. Yeah. T-shirts. Yeah. Um, little onesies for babies saying, I'm the reason mummy drinks. Right. right. So what do you see when you see these types of this, this alcohol culture around you? How do you respond to that? I think it's a fascinating um, journalistic story that in the mid-1990s, the alcohol industry realized they were losing the Johnny Walker drinkers and they Mm. were dying out and they did market segmentation and looked around the world and realized there was a whole gender underperforming and they invented the Alcopop, which is, you know, like um, Smirnoff Ice, Mm. Um, the fizzy prepackaged drinks Mm -hmm. that are focused on teenage girls. Mm -hmm. And we saw a whole pinking of the market. Mm. Pinking of the market with um, things like girls' night out wine, Mm -hmm. the skinny girl cocktails, what I call cocktails with training wheels, aimed at steering young women towards these drinks away from beer. Mm -hmm. And we've ended up with a culture where women don't slow down after the university years as they always used to. Mm-hmm. And it's confounding ep- epidemiologists. Why is this happening? Mm. Why are women drinking? And the, the data, the new data is extraordinary. Um, why are they catching up to men? And men are slowing down, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a heck of a news story. Right. So have we cracked that nut yet? Have we, we haven't figured out why uh, those trends are reversing? That's the reason I wrote my book. Right. Um, I would say the reasons are threefold. Um, there's self-medication, as I was doing. Mm-hmm. There's the huge marketing piece, mm-hmm. which is enormous. And there's also what I call become the modern woman's steroid using alcohol the way I did, you know, to speed up, to slow down, Mm. um, to help address a very busy life. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's easier when you race in from a busy day at the office to, and you have a meal to put on the table and homework over to see, it's easier to open a bottle of wine, Mm. pour yourself a glass than to get to yoga class. And it's just become... A thing of popular culture. Right, right. You know, is it a book club or a wine club? Is it a girl's weekend away or is it an opportunity to drink wine? Right, yeah. Now, when you were um, doing the book, you mentioned that you had a discussion with your editor or the articles um, with your editor uh, if you would open up about your own um, struggles at that time before the book came out. What was the hesitation there? I didn't want to hide my drinking story. I wanted to come out in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And my editor said, are you independently wealthy? <laughs> um, you'll never get a job again. Really? The stigma is so large. And I believe the stigma is large. I took her advice, didn't come out with my story, and then wrote my book. Mm. The hardest thing about writing my book wasn't actually the physical writing of it. It was deciding to tell those stories on myself. Right. It was a big decision. Right. I imagine. So what was your process like for, well, first of all, for writing the book and then for eventually making that decision? I realized that I had grown up in a culture where we 
kept open secrets. Mm. You know, it wasn't a secret that my mother drank, but we were not allowed to talk about it. Mm. And we lived in a culture where it was kept quiet and it was a dirty secret. And it's much the same as mental health Mm -hmm. issues. The issue of do you open up and talk as you have Mm -hmm. um, and I have, or do you remain quiet and keep the stigma large? And so it was an effort to destigmatize the subject. Yeah. Now, you've been a very active public speaker, of course, uh, on this topic, especially since the book. Were you you speaking openly before the book as well, or that came as a result of the book? Came as a result of the book. I I had been doing a lot of speaking on higher education, but not not on this subject. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, so that's an interesting piece then, too, from the higher education uh, place. I mean, you hear about... um, uh, alcoholism on campuses all the time, but it's always to do with, you know, first and second year students or, or, or the student population. But did you observe faculty, staff, especially executives in, in university environments? Uh, was it affecting them as well? I mean, those are high power positions too. No, um, you're right. It's a, a university story and it's typically your first and second year mm-hmm. um, students who are, you know, targeted and looked at and et cetera, et cetera. But um, no, I was, um, it it was a subject of campus drinking, but not beyond. Yeah. So what were, what has the response from your audience has been now that you've been, you have the book out, you're speaking about the book. Um, what kind of conversations is this sparking uh, from people that you talk to? It's a tough subject. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a tough subject because, um, People, I find, are very open to the mental health part of it. Mm. Um, the alcohol part, we still have a lot to destigmatize mm. in terms of um, the trauma connection mm-hmm. with addiction mm-hmm. is something that, say, Gabor Mate has been talking a lot about. Mm. And um, But the reasons why you drink are, I think, fascinating. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I think that there's still a lot of judgment, a lot of judgment as in you put that down your throat or right. up your nose and it's your fault. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I, I'm fully immersed in the mental health space, but even within then, within there, whether it's alcohol or any other substance, there's still a division between uh, addictions, substance-related disorders, and mental health. People still aren't making the connection. No. Why do you think that is? What's the resistance? And there seems to be resistance internally in both camps, right? That I would agree. It seems like people on the substance use side don't want to be seen as quote unquote crazy. And people on the mental illness side don't want to be seen as having addictions. It's like they stigmatize each other. That's right. Why? There isn't there isn't the um, fluidity that you would expect. Mm-hmm. And I think the stigma is still very large around addiction. Mm-hmm. So what do we need to do to break this down? I mean, we're hearing from people like you, and I think that's making a big difference. Have you have you been noticing a difference over the years? You know, I'd love to say yes, <laughs> but I um, know that when I give speeches, there's still resistance and I think it comes down to this. I pay my taxes, I raise my kids, I'm a good citizen, don't tell me what to do on a Friday or Saturday night. Right. Um, right. That's my business, how I drink. It seems to be the harder we tack toward the 
biological model of, of mental health. There's something wrong with your brain. It seems anyway that the more we're pulling away from some of those more psychodynamic aspects of it, you know, that maybe there, there is underlying trauma. Maybe you're drinking for a reason. Maybe there's other, you know, maybe it's not that your brain is telling you to drink more. Maybe you actually got to deal with all this other painful, icky uh, stuff from your past. And that's what people are pulling away from. They don't want to they don't want to talk about that. Right. Yeah, it could be true. Now, you've been exploring this in your work recently, um, right. becoming a therapist. Tell me about that. <laughs> it's been fascinating. I worked um, at a addiction facility last year, um, Jean Tweed Center, which is a fine Canadian resource for women. And I've loved working with women with addiction issues. Mm. Um, that's been fascinating for me. Going back to school has been fascinating and Learning to be a therapist is a different way of taking the knowledge that I have and applying it. I think, and I, I tried to do this when I was working um, as a clinician as well. But one of the most, some of the most effective clinicians that I had ever had as a patient uh, were people who opened up about their own experience as well. Now, there's a right way and a wrong way to do that, of course. Doing it safely is key. Um, but have you? Uh, been using it and have you found it difficult uh, you know to, to is it triggering for you to always be around people who are uh, dealing with similar struggles that you used to have it's not triggering for me and it's um, given the profile of my book mm -hmm. it's impossible for me to hide the right. fact that I have a story right most people know I have a story so that's interesting mm -hmm. um, in terms of sharing that history with clients so how do you do that? How do you navigate that? Talk openly about it. Yeah. Share. Yeah. Talk about the struggles. Have you had anybody come in and ask you to sign your book yet? <laughs> I have. <laughs> that's great. I have. <laughs> I guess that's a really quick and easy way to build a relationship with a client, right? <laughs> yes. No, I have. I have. Yeah. I've had clients uh, reread the book yeah. and it's been interesting that way. Yeah. Now, what about in terms of how they feel about themselves and about their their addiction. Uh, you know, one of the struggles I think that sometimes people face, especially family members, is that people either aren't ready for change or, or don't accept that they have a problem. I mean, I imagine if they're in a treatment facility, they're already fairly far along the, the that journey. Fairly far along the journey, yes. And dealing with usually that first year of that I mentioned before, right. which is... Um, challenging and finding family support right. can be difficult. Right. I think we're, maybe, I guess, lucky. I don't know if that's the right word or not, but maybe lucky to have such a supportive family because <laughs> not everybody does. And, and you must have heard that from your clients so far. I was. I was tremendously mm. lucky to have a supportive family and continue to do so. And mm. I, it's a real treasure in my life. It's something that my siblings don't let me forget and it's <laughs> yeah fantastic that's beautiful and i love that they don't let you forget it too yeah though. because that's that's important i think sometimes we as family members fall into the trap of assuming that everybody we love knows that we love them i have a um a daily telephone call with my sister who lives in guelph and mm. at seven forty every morning my phone rings and it's rich yeah Rich to have that kind of relationship. Yeah. So can you relate 
then or how do you relate? How do you find the empathy uh, in somebody who comes to talk to you and their their mother or their sister or their husband or whoever it is is one of the driving factors that is is counterproductive to their recovery or who doesn't understand or who they don't know how to tell? How do you or how do you envision tackling those kinds of issues? And that's common. And that's mm-hmm. common for people to um, have individuals around them still drinking and not supporting them. I mean, one of the things that happened in my family is people stopped drinking wine around me, which was mm. incredibly supportive. But not everybody has that. Not mm. everybody has that kind of understanding, mm. cheering squad. Mm. Now, now the you know not only abstinence for you, but abstinence at least when you're around for your family as well is like you say extremely supportive. Uh, so I take it then you feel that abstinence is the right route, or uh, on the harm reduction side, uh, tapering or or occasional drinking. That you know where do you fall in the most effective intervention for uh, the types of struggles that you've had? I've seen harm reduction work um, at Gene Tweed is a harm reduction facility. Mm-hmm. I've seen harm reduction work where, you know, women who have been using heroin would move to um, using cannabis or marijuana. Mm-hmm. And um, I've seen harm reduction work. Um, in my personal reality, it wasn't an option. Right, right. Um, the thin edge of the wedge kind of thing. Thin edge of the wedge for me. And... Um, I think that um, not a day goes by or a week goes by where I don't hear from readers who mm. uh, picked up drink and share that story, mm-hmm. share that journey, mm-hmm. share that reality. Mm. I recently read um, uh, an article by Andre Picard, who, who had come on the show previously as well, in which uh, there's a lot of debate about supervised consumption sites for various drugs, uh, uh, supervised injection sites across Canada. And he said, we already have those for alcohol, supervised consumption sites. They're bars, they're restaurants, they're everywhere, <laughs> right? So, you know, I, I had never quite thought of it that way before. That That's is, a novel way to look at right? it. Right, exactly. I think it was quite controversial too, but Andre's not very shy about being controversial. No, <laughs> no, he's a bright man. He, he is. So, so have you noticed a difference as a journalist in the way that people report on uh, alcohol and, and alcoholics in, in stories that relate to them. It's really interesting that the story has not been covered as well as I would like to see it be covered mm-hmm. in the press. I mean, I think my series in the Atkinson Fellowship in the Toronto Star was unusual. And still, still unusual, I think. Still unusual. Yeah. We have all absorbed the notion that a glass of red wine is good for your heart. We've right. absorbed that really well, and people love reading those stories. Oh, yeah. They always um, look up information that affirms their existing beliefs. That's right. <laughs> but in terms of appreciating that, for instance, women are are starting to be sent to hospitals and Mm -hmm. emergency situations at a higher rate than men. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a big news story a couple of months ago, and it got some attention, which was nice to see, Mm -hmm. but we're not seeing the kind of attention I think that we should be. Also, in 2011, Health Canada created the lowest drinking guidelines, and it isn't something that most Canadians would even be aware of. Really? Yeah. Uh, something that, you know, my argument is you know how to count your calories, count your drinks. Right. But it isn't, it mm. isn't well understood. Yeah. Is, is it 
well understood within the medical community itself as well? Are men and women treated differently for alcoholism in, in the medical community? I think when you go and see your doctor and you uh, they ask you how much you drink, they typically double what you're saying. Oh, really? We typically underreport what we drink. Right, right. And But I think that when I first went to my doctor and said, I think I have an alcohol problem, my first doctor told me to drink more water and walk more. Really? Um, said, you're a high-functioning woman. There's no way you have an alcohol problem. Hmm. I went to my second doctor a couple of years later, and she did a quick test on me and said, yes, you do, and go get treatment, and I did. Wow. Wow. And that, that was the, the difference of that appointment, right, and how That's the doctor right. dealt with it. Wow. So I'm a big believer in the, the first stop you make is with your GP, and mm. the role that they can play is enormous. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you said there was a few years in between those things. So how, all told, how long were you, were you um, drinking to excess? I think um, it evolved over a period of about 12 years. 12 years. Yes. Yeah. Gradually. Gradually. And then the last two years were very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And was it interfering with your, starting to interfere with your life or or still nobody would have noticed? Or were no, they, it was starting to interfere with my really? life. Yeah. 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 And that's and when the family staged yes. an intervention. That's right. 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 You know, this is... Um, uh, fascinating for me because I think it's uh, we've had a couple of people on the show who have talked about uh, very similar uh, struggles and and you're right I think if, if anything the culture around alcohol is strengthening not not weakening in in some demographics maybe uh, on the other hand there's also uh, a resurgence of non-alcoholic drinks for example and Millennials seem to drink less maybe they have less money to afford it I don't know but, right you know so so there it does seem to be or is it generational uh, it, it does it differ between generations the consumption it, of alcohol it looks like it's generational mm -hmm. and um, we're seeing people in their 40s and 50s not slowing down. Mm -hmm. um, but it's hard to tell when you look at the mummy drinking culture. Mm -hmm. That's a younger demographic, and it's very vital, mm -hmm. the drinking culture. So I think the jury's out. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. we don't know how all this is going to evolve. Mm -hmm. What would you tell somebody who is in that first year uh, that, that they're just trying to figure it out now and it's, and it's really hard? I would tell them to take it one day at a time. You have to take it not only one day at a time, sometimes a half day at a time mm. to flourish in this culture and unhitch yourself from an addiction. Be patient. Lots of self-care. Lots of nurturing Lots of leaning on others. Mm. Lots of just taking care of yourself. Mm. As hard as recovery has been, has it been worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely worth it. It's been a joy. All the things that are possible in my life would not be possible. In fact, I firmly believe I wouldn't be here. I would have died some very uh, difficult death. I think it was going to take me out. Well, I'm so grateful that it didn't. I'm so grateful that you're able to share this message and help so many other people with the book, uh, with your speaking, and, and now literally hands-on in the trenches of mental health care. So thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you for having me.
There's my conversation with Ann Dowsett Johnston. Her book, Drink, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol, is available everywhere. Uh, and it's a great read. I really suggest you go go pick it up, uh, especially if you relate to the subject matter. I mean, the way that she's been breaking down barriers in such a consistent and, and powerful way around women and alcohol in particular, I think is a perspective that not a lot of people really consider. So I hope that you learned a lot in this conversation, that you related to a lot of it, uh, and that you share it too. So if you, if you accessed it on on uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, I'd like to ask you a favor. Go on there and subscribe to the show. Leave us a star rating. Head down to the bottom and leave some comments. Uh, if you if you listened on Google Podcasts or Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever, uh, share it. Share it on social media and tag me too. My, my handle is at Mark Hennick. That's at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. Uh, I'm everywhere on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, YouTube, everywhere. So where, whatever platform you're on, you can find me and you can find the show on there. I'd like to thank Entertainment One, uh, Adrian and Kimberly over here, and Dave, the editor who assembles these episodes for making all these uh, th- this great journey possible. So that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Mark Hennick, and this has been So-Called Normal. <laughs>